Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Cheryl Toth and Mike Sakopoulos, and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. Welcome to this special bonus episode of Sound Practice. Sound Practice is the podcast of the American Association for Physician Leadership. I'm your host, Mike Sakopoulos. In this episode, I will be speaking with Dr. Peter Hotez of Baylor School of Medicine. Dr. Hotez is a national expert on COVID-19. Today, we will discuss variants, public policy, discrepancies in vaccination rates, vaccine hesitancy in the healthcare community, and even anti-vax campaigns targeted at minority groups. This is an important discussion, so let's begin. My guest on Sound Practice today is Dr. Peter Hotez. Dr. Hotez is the Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine and Professor of Pediatrics and Molecular Virology and Microbiology at Baylor College of Medicine, where he's also co-director of Texas Children's Center for Vaccine Development and Texas Children's Hospital Endowed Chair of Tropical Pediatrics. All right, so we are speaking in early February. How do we best manage the pandemic between now and let's say the end of May? Well, you know, in the United States, uh, this, you know, there's been twists and turns in every step of this uh, epidemic and pandemic. And in the United States, the latest twist and turn, of course, is the rise of uh, the new variants that we're starting to see. So the good news is the number of cases has started to go down from around 250 million new cases a day to uh, less than half of that. It's still a pretty high level. If you had told us that we'd be happy about 100,000 new cases a day a year ago, we'd be horrified, of course, right? But but it is coming down. Um, we don't exactly know why, whether it's because of the wear off of all the Thanksgiving, <coughs> Christmas, New Year surges or, or seasonality of the virus, or people are finally understanding what it means to social distance. But in any case, it is coming down. That's the good news. The bad news is we think this will be temporary because now the UK variant is starting to uh, outcompete the other virus strains. A doubling time, we think, of every 10 days, it, it should increase. And we already know now that it's in Florida and California. We don't know where else because it's we've been underperforming in terms of sequencing. So I think we have to anticipate that the UK variant will become predominant as we move into the spring months into March, April, and May. And we also now have the, the South African variant here. We know it's in South Carolina, maybe, maybe in Maryland, um, but, but that's another big worry. The UK variant, the good news is the vaccines seem to protect equally well from what we can tell against the UK variant as they do the others. The bad news is the UK variant is uh, is accelerating in terms of transmissibility, maybe 50-40% more transmissible than the, our current strains, and the mortality level go, will go up. So it all really depends now on how quickly we can vaccinate the American people ahead of the variant. So this is crunch time now over the next few months. You wrote an important piece this past week about the coming crisis among 
the black, brown, and indigenous uh, citizens of our, our country. Uh, the biggest concern is vaccine rollout numbers are showing disparities when it comes to, to race. Could you comment on the really perfect storm of vaccine hesitancy uh, coupled with the vaccine unavailability? What outreach would you suggest uh, yeah, I mean, I, I am very worried about black and brown communities for a few reasons. One, they often uh, tend to be linked to low-income neighborhoods where people are essential workers. By that, I mean they're not home via Zoom and Skype. They are um, they are working in business, family-owned businesses or on construction sites or in the service industry, and therefore are exposed at a higher rate. They often have multi, live in multi-generational homes. So you're a 20-year-old kid on a construction site, you're then coming home to your parents and your grandparents, and they're getting infected. And uh, then there's a high rate of comorbidities, such as hypertension and diabetes. So all of these things are combining together. And the fact that we are seem to be vaccinating people of color at lower rates than, than, than Caucasian populations, that's also worrisome. So for instance, the Kaiser family Foundation recently did a study, for instance, in Mississippi, which where the African-American population accounts for 38%, yet about only 18% have been vaccinated. So there is that you know, two to one disparity in vaccinating. So addressing that's got to be a big priority as well. How, how do you think it's best to address that? I think there's a few things going on. One, making it more accessible. I think opening up vaccination hubs in low-income neighborhoods, that's gotta be a priority. And so for instance, here in Houston, our mayor, Sylvester Turner has made that commitment. He made an announcement over the last weekend. So I think that's the kinds of things we have to think about doing. I think the other is addressing the pretty high rates of vaccine hesitancy that we're seeing, especially in the black community. Um, we did a study, um, uh, was led by a colleague of mine, uh, Tim Callahan, who's a social scientist at Texas A&M and found that uh, black populations, African-American groups are the second highest vaccine hesitant group. And the Kaiser Family Foundation did a similar study with different methods, came to the same conclusion. So addressing also the vaccine hesitancy issue in the, in the black community is going to be important as well. And the hesitancy in the the, the black community, are you seeing that across the country equally or is it greater or lesser in different geographic areas? I don't think we know. We just have those two or three, two or three studies. Uh, it seems to be uh, across the country and a lot of it is around uh, fears about the safety of the vaccine, that it was, they feel it was rushed, even though I like to point out we've had a research and development program for a decade around coronavirus vaccine. So there's nothing really rushed about it, but there's been a lot of mismessaging. The other thing that we're, we have found is that um, very tragically, the African-American population has been targeted by anti-vaccine groups specifically. So this has been a new battlefront from the anti-vaccine groups targeting specific groups. They did this with the Somali immigrant community in 2017 convinced them that vaccines cause autism, drove down vaccination coverage, and then caused the measles epidemic. Then they did again with the Orthodox Jewish community in 2018, 2019. 
and did it in a very inflammatory way, parading around with yellow Jewish stars with the word vax and the yellow Jewish star that made it look like Hebrew letters. I mean, they're about as offensive as you could get. And now they're doing this with the African-American community, comparing vaccines to the COVID vaccines to the Tuskegee experiments and experimentation on, on, on people in the, in the black community that ended in 1972. So I'm spending a lot of time now countering all of that disinformation campaign on, uh, whenever, at least uh, on a daily or other daily basis, I'm going on African-American talk radio shows and podcasts to try to reach those groups and explain why um, what we've seen now in the black and brown communities is about 35% of the deaths are under the age of 65. So that's the other piece to this. You know, when we talk about COVID-19 deaths, the narrative that's out there, it's uh, an illness, uh, severe illness in people over the age of 65. That's not true in, in black, brown and native, native American communities. So 30 to 35% under that age. So so what we're doing is we're losing a generation of moms and dads and brothers and sisters. Uh, and, and that's really devastating. So I'm trying to do whatever I can to dispel the misinformation that's out there. Um, it sounds truly monstrous. Is This is, I assume, going on via social media. And has there been any assistance from those platforms in dealing with this deliberate misinformation campaign yeah the anti-vaccine groups dominate the internet and uh and social media i mean you go to even go to the amazon.com site and type in books up at the top as everyone has done and press return and then you'll get the health dieting on the menu at the left you click on that again the vaccination it's all fake anti-vaccine covid conspiracy books so you know how you counter that is is tough and i've been dealing with this for years because I've been going toe to toe with the anti-vaccine groups. I have a daughter with autism and I wrote a book a few years back called Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism to, because that's one of their central tenets and going into the detailed information showing there's no link between MMR, dimerosol or any of those things and autism and how autism begins in early fetal brain development uh, as, a, as a physician scientist. And, this is tough because they are so dominant. They are so uh, ubiquitous on, on the internet, on Facebook. And, you know, it's not a lot of groups. There's about maybe 10, 12 major anti-vaccine groups who are perpetrating this. And it wouldn't be that hard to take it down, but so far no one's got the appetite to do it. Well, let's hope that this podcast helps increase an appetite to address that. Um, vaccine hesitancy that we, you spoke about just moments ago, unfortunately seems to have um, be present in the healthcare community as well. I've seen studies that say 30 to 40% range uh, of, of healthcare workers are vaccine hesitant. And it seems that we've done collectively a poor job of communicating the safety of, of vaccines. Can you give us some talking points um, to, to help remedy this? I can. You know, the uh, Operation Warp Speed was a good vaccine development program, but it never had a communication strategy appended to it. The communications were were basically ceded to the pharma CEOs who were not strong communicators. And of course, when they're writing press releases, they're writing them for their shareholders. So that created a lot of uh, uh, fusion and there was never really a strong communication program to begin with. 
and the other piece was filled by the anti-vaccine uh, groups. So I'm spending a lot of time now diffusing this. And what was really interesting is I mentioned that it was the African-American populations that were the second most vaccine hesitant group, but the most vaccine hesitant group were um, what, what we call Trump voters and what the Kaiser Family Foundation called uh, Republicans, quote unquote. So what's going on there? And, and there, I think there's an interesting story of the rise of the anti-vaccine movement starting around 2015. It came out of Texas and Oklahoma, Southern California, Texas and Oklahoma, around this banner of health freedom, medical freedom, where it was tied to political ideology on, on the right around government, trying to hold off government uh, interference. But unfortunately, those same groups now have uh, glommed on protests against mass social distancing and now COVID-19 vaccines. So in addition to driving up childhood vac exemption, childhood vaccine exemptions in places like Texas and Oklahoma, it's also taken on this, unfortunately. And so, you know, with regard to the healthcare providers, I don't think I have a good understanding of the demographics of the healthcare providers who are not accepting vaccines, but our two groups are two very diametrically opposed groups, right? The, the Trump voters slash Republicans versus the African-American community. And, um, and yet they seem to be finding common ground around vaccine hesitancy. So in addition to reaching out to African-American groups, um, now going on conservative talk radio shows and and cable news networks and i've been doing newsmax and fox news and the daily caller and what's interesting there when you go on is there the obsession seems to be around mandates there is this belief again it may come from the anti-vaccine groups creating this illusion that there's this obsession about mandates that we are going to call in the military and hold people down and force vaccinations, which is ridiculous, of course, but this is what's been, this is what's out there. And I think that's also driving vaccine hesitancy. And, you know, with regard to mandates, I, I point out, look, right now, we don't even have the vaccines to require any mandates. It's just not in the cards. And I don't think anybody's talking very seriously about mandates at this point. So it seems to be the straw man that the conservative news outlets have kind of created again. And I think it, it reflects the anti-vaccine groups, many of which are linked to political extremism on the right. So very interesting day these days. Now, you know, I try to, first of all, I'm a vaccine scientist focusing on vaccine development for our COVID-19 vaccine speaking to the nation on MSNBC and CNN. And then, you know, at some point during the day, going either on an African-American talk radio show or one of these conservative news outlets. And talk about the need to be versatile. That's, uh, that, that's it. And, and woe is me if I forget which, which one I'm on. <laughs> so that's so, but it's been a fascinating education and, and I, and I'm doing it, you know, trying to, now basically make it clear that I'm out there trying to save lives and and I'm not trying to politicize it. I think what happens though when you disentangle, try to disentangle the anti-vaccine, anti-science stuff from the politics, you tend to get drawn in. So for example, last year, you know, when I had to, you know, debunk a lot of the disinformation campaign coming out of the White House saying that it was um 
you know, that they were calling COVID a hoax and masks, discrediting masks and all that kind of stuff. You know, I had to call it out. And then I was accused of, you know, working for the Biden camp. And, and, and I wasn't, you know, it's, it's, but there was no way to disentangle the politics without, without calling it out. And now what's really interesting that I'm uh, out there also making suggestions to the Biden team on things that could be improved. And now I'm being seen from the political left as, as this, as this being some form of betrayal, which is also equally ridiculous. So it's, it's, it's not easy being a scientist in the public domain, but I think it's very important. A, phys a physician scientist in the public domain. Well, I think you're to be commended and thanked for that because unfortunately I've seen a number of physicians who feel like their civic responsibility is to provide only clinical data and not link it to any type of policy whatsoever. That um, beneath but I think, the white you know, lab coat is not a citizen, but right, some kind of right. strict scientist, but, right? But I think, you know, one of the lessons that I've learned this past year is there's, it's sometimes hard to avoid talking about the politics and I think it's okay to talk about the politics, you know, because, you know, for instance, my, my bosses, when I, you know, started going on CNN, CNN and MSNBC a lot. And then at that time it was Fox News early on, you know, they said, hey, Peter, it's great. You're doing this. Just focus on the science, just focus on the science. And that's what all, you know, academic health centers tend to be pretty risk averse institutions when it comes to public communications, protecting the reputation of the institution. And I said, yeah, you know, I get that. But, you know, there came a point where you had to, dive into that realm in order to disentangle it, in order to pull it back out. And, um, and there was no roadmap to follow. And I thought that was really interesting. And, you know, I had to more or less go by my gut. And actually, my inspiration there was my wife, Anne, you know, she saw how upset I was getting when I saw the deaths starting to mount. And she said, you know, you got, you know, you don't want to wake up, you know, six months from now, look at the death toll and, and realize you didn't do all you could to try to save them. That's all I needed to hear. And then, but it, but it did take me and it still continues to take me into some very dark corners and it's, and it, it makes, and this is interesting for physician leaders. It does make organizations, meaning academic health centers or major hospitals cringe a bit. It, it makes the, you know, the, the CEOs uncomfortable as well to have to, have to do that because generally they don't really like their docs speaking out or their, or their scientists, you know, they want to control the flow of the information and, and communications from hospitals, hospital systems, especially academic health centers, as I say, is very risk averse. So it's, it's this interesting tug that that's going on right now. And, uh, but one of the lessons learned there, I think, is that People do appreciate hearing from physicians. They do appreciate hearing from scientists in a way they've never heard from them before, right? In the past, everything's always been filtered through the journalists and anchors. And I think generally speaking, people like to hear directly from the docs and, and the physician scientists. Um, as long as we don't make uh, the two big mistakes that we often make, which is one, we tend to lapse into jargon easily and then people lose you. The more common mistake actually is we tend to dumb it down too much. We, you know, somebody at a school of communications 40 years ago said, you have to talk to the American people like they're in the fourth grade or the sixth grade. 
And I think that is still stuck. And I can say that that had, when people have done that, especially with the White House Coronavirus Task Force last year, it was very off-putting. And so I think the American people do like the complexity and are willing to tolerate the complexity as long as you're willing to take the time to really let it, let it unravel a bit and explain. Well, it's certainly a complex issue. Uh, as you know, we're a podcast for position leaders and, and position executives, and your, your colleagues, Dr. Hotez, are emotionally drained, mentally drained, physically drained from, from taking care of so many cases of, of COVID-19. Um, our messaging as a, as a group is to, to them has been to stay the course, to trust science, remember their commitment to, to patients. What type of encouragement uh, are you giving to your clinical colleagues? Yeah, you know, it, it is tough. And, um, and the emotional toll has been huge, right? I mean, with seeing all the death and destruction and, you know, family members dying alone. I mean, you know, we will have, there's no question, you know, our whole health profession will have PTSD for a long time to come after this year. I think we'll also come out of it stronger with a greater awareness of what's what's important to us. But I think, you know, there, there's a, a, a few a few things about that. One, the fact that those healthcare providers who want to get vaccinated can get vaccinated. I think that that's a game changer, no, no doubt about it. You know, I mean, it's really important to know that when you say goodbye to your family in the morning, that you're gonna not wind up yourself in a hospital or an ICU that evening, that that's really powerful. I would say, you know, vaccinating family members is also would be that next step, you know, that I think would provide a, a lot of uh, reassurance and support. You know, the, and I think being frank with healthcare providers, uh, you know, with the, what the landscape looks like and, and being honest to say, you know, we are in an eye of a hurricane right now. The number of new cases is going down below 100,000, but that the variants are coming and we better get around, you know, get ready for, you know, being down here on the Gulf Coast, we know about hurricanes and we know when we're in the eye, the, the worst is yet to come. And, and unfortunately, that's probably true. So it's, awful as this has been, we have to recognize that there's another big wave coming with the UK variant, which the vaccine still works against, but also the South African variant, which the vaccines don't work as well against. So, you know, all of us as vaccine developers are scrambling to make the South African variant equivalent to that. So don't, don't be surprised if you see a booster coming later in the fall, like a third immunization, that that's that's a real uh, possibility. You know, I think, um, you know, the, one of the issues that I see among healthcare providers is that even before COVID-19, there were a lot of issues, right? And, and you know, there's a lot of resentment around uh, electronic health records or what, or what ZDOG MD, aka Zubin Damania calls the electronic cash register. So, so there's, al there's already a lot of resentment around there. And, you know, you're hearing that people are not as uh, thrilled with the health profession, especially the medical professions they were even before COVID-19. So this is no doubt it's going to accelerate trends. That's the downside. The positive side 
is, you know, as young people have seen that physicians and physician scientists are one of the few trusted professions left out there, we have seen applications to medical school go up. Um, and so there might be some optimism there for our future. I think it's going to be really important. Um, if I had to say one thing to physician health leaders is I think giving giving young physicians especially more space in terms of expressing um, concerns about social injustice, um, expressing concerns about their patients. You know, as I say, academic health centers especially, but all hospitals tend to clamp down pretty hard on physicians when they speak out of things that they see that are wrong because there's there's this need to preserve, quote, the reputation of the institution. I think giving physicians more space to express outrage at um, health inequities and, and other aspects, I, you know, and having a frank discussion about that with your staff, I think, I think help you go a long way and help restore morale as well. Dr. Hotez, we could spend all afternoon speaking, but I, I promise to keep this uh, interview within certain parameters. And I think I've, uh, I've already gone past my allotted time. So I want to thank you very much on behalf of the AAPL and, and myself for taking time this afternoon uh, to speak with us. My guest has been Dr. Peter Hotes. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me and, and congratulations on all the important work your, your group is doing and to the physician leaders, we need you. We'll let that be the final word. Thank you. I hope you found the discussion with Dr. Peter Hotez interesting and beneficial. Dr. Hotez is the author of Preventing the Next Pandemic, Vaccine Diplomacy in a Time of Anti-Science. A link to his work is included in the show notes for this episode of Sound Practice. Many thanks to Dr. Peter Hotez and to the American Association for Physician Leadership for making this possible. All the best. Bada bing, bada You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Had his holy cow, but man Robin went for kapow.